of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, morning, church. My name is Rob, if you don't already know me. And um, how many of you are aware, Sky flagged this, but how many of you are aware that we have a Bible reading plan? Have a show of hands. Great. Well, you do now. Um, we do have our church as a Bible reading plan. It's very easy to follow along with. Uh, if you're keen to sort of get into that, we've got an email that gets sent out daily. Um, how many of you have been tracking along with it? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, wonderful. Great. Um, if you have been tracking along with it, we've been studying the book of Exodus. And it's a fascinating book, isn't it? It's one of my favorites. Um, when the nation of Israel is rescued out of the land of Egypt, the Lord sets up a meeting with Moses. And it's this just awesome scene where... Moses says, look, God is going to come down and when he does to Mount Sinai, you're not even to try to, you know, take a little, you know, don't take trail mix with you and go for like a bush walk up, to, up this mountain. Don't even come near this mountain. If you do, you'll be struck dead on spot. That's pretty full on, right? Don't come anywhere near this. And the Israelites didn't doubt this. Well, why didn't they doubt this? Well, because they've seen firsthand the plagues in Egypt, right? This is just on the heels of that. They've seen God splitting the Red Sea, seen all these miracles. So they're not going, well, yeah, whatever. Like they, they, they know that God is powerful and awesome. And so finally the day comes. God meets with Moses. And it says that there was thunder and lightning and the whole mountain was wrapped in thick smoke because the Lord came down to it in fire. This whole scene was so awesome, it says that the people shuddered. Trumpet blast, thick smoke, you can just imagine it. And the Lord speaks to Moses. And the Lord says this, I am the Lord. Did you hear that? I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This is, this name is how God permits his people to know him. He reveals himself to Moses. He reveals himself to the prophets. And they jot it down accordingly. What God reveals about himself in his word is what is objectively true about him. Not what we wish was true about him. Not what we subjectively feel to be true about him. But God's word alone accurately represents who he is. Do, do you believe that? Okay, so then if that's true, and we start with, say, the book of Genesis, all the way to Revelation, and we ask who God is, how has he then revealed himself? Well, we soon discover that the Lord is triune. 
God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, if, if you're on social media or you watch the news or, I don't know, you leave your house, uh, you, you know that this thing, identity, is a pretty big buzzword nowadays, right? Identity, identity, identity. This is my identity. This is the way I define myself this way. Didn't work for me the other day. I tried, I wanted the concession card for a senior citizen's discount. <laughs> and I said to the person across from me, I, I have four kids and I feel like I'm old. <laughs> and I identify that way. And the person said, that's, that's, that doesn't work. And I said, I will sue you in this place <laughs> for discriminating against me because I identify I want a concession card. <laughs> so they laughed because I was, you know, I had a smile on my face, but... But it's interesting because identity is a big buzzword, right? So, so then, have you ever thought then, okay, how does God identify? How has he described himself? Again, when we look at the pages of Scripture, we see that the Lord is triune. Some of you might have heard the word Trinity before, which is the, the very heart of who God is. It's his self-description. And we know this from the Bible. One author named Scott Swain put it this way. He said, The Bible is the primary discourse of Trinitarian theology. Fluently, almost effortlessly, the prophets and apostles narrate, bless, pray, and sing the name of the triune God. Now I would bet that some of you at this point are starting to get a little worried and you're thinking, oh my goodness, Worry, are we really, are we really going to spend an entire Sunday talking about something as abstract as the Trinity? I mean, this, that, that just does my head in. I'm, uh, well, look, if you feel that way, you're not alone. And many people have been totally spun out on this idea. Uh, how, how does three, one, I don't, I don't understand. It can be very confusing and complex. So let me say that. But at the same time, the doctrine of the Trinity is arguably... The doctrine of the Trinity is arguably the most important central doctrine in the Christian faith because it tells us exactly who the God is that we worship. If we don't worship the triune God, if you don't worship the triune God, listen, you're not worshiping the God of Scripture. You're not worshiping the Bible. I'm sorry, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Do you see why that's a big deal? I know you might feel that to be true, but that's irrelevant, friend, because God has disclosed himself in the pages of Scripture. Now, not to mention, by the way, the doctrine of the Trinity really shapes all other concepts about God. And in other words, creation, his redemption of sinners, and so on. So in light of that, do you think that it would be worth, say, the, I don't know, the next 30 minutes to explore that together as a church? Uh, I think so. Are you up for that? Great. So, but how do we boil this down? How do I not just dump a bunch of information in your head and you go, three, no, three gods? No, 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 wait, that's wrong, that's heresy. Uh, come on, Patrick, you know, or whatever. How do I not, you know, how do I get this dialed in here? What's going on? Let me just try to sum it up. So you can just walk away with a sentence, okay? So how do, how do we walk out of your day with a concise definition of the Trinity? Here it is. God is one in essence, 
three in person. God is one in, and this is, these, by the way, this has been said throughout church history for hundreds of years. This is not like Rob just came up with this. God is one in essence, three in person. Now, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to unpack that sentence. We're going to look at various scriptures. Easy enough, right? I hope. All right, let's pray. Father, we come now as needy sinners. We thank you that you sent your son who lived a perfect life in obedience to you, who died on the cross for our sin. And we thank you that your spirit drew us to yourself, convicts the world of guilt and sin. We pray that you would do that now, that we would see how central the gospel is to the Trinity. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So years ago, I was on holiday in, in I want to say Bali, but you guys say Bali. But anyway, so what, whatever. <laughs> Learn how to speak. So, so, so I was op- up above Australia, and, you know, in that country up there. And it, it's an interesting spot. Um, lots of good surf. Uh, plenty of bogans cruising around and bintang singlets and, and lots of cool spots to see. If you do go, here's one thing that you'll see uh, all over the place. Uh, do you know what these are? They're, they're Hindu offerings called Chananeng Sari. These gifts are made to, they're, they're actually made daily. They re- make a real mess of the place, by the way. If you go there, it's just, they're everywhere. You'd think they'd do the offering and then clean it up, but anyway. So these gifts are, um, they're made daily to Hindu gods, and they represent thankfulness and peace. Now, Hindus would be the first to tell you that they believe in numerous gods. They're what's called polytheistic. And this is nothing new, by the way. The Bible acknowledges the existence of different religions that worship many gods, but, but here's the bottom line difference. It teaches that these gods exist in name only. Did you catch that? In other words, there are numerous so-called gods, lowercase g, but the scriptures present only one god. I mean, don't just take my word for it. Look what God says about himself in Isaiah 45. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no god. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. That's pretty airtight. Do you agree? Interesting. I was having a conversation the other day with my neighbor, and we were standing there in front of my letterbox, and she said to me, you know, and she's lovely, but she said, you know, Rob, it really doesn't matter what God you believe in or pray to, I mean, look, there's probably something out there, Allah, Vishnu, whatever, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter, just as long as, you know, they're all probably working together, or maybe there's one, don't know who he, she, or it is. It doesn't really matter. Have you ever heard people say things like that before? Yeah. The problem is, the God of the Bible 
is not a member of a larger class of gods. He alone is God because he alone is God by nature. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. See, the Christian faith is not polytheistic, believing in many individual gods, each with its own divine nature. We are not polytheists. We are monotheists. We believe that God is one, one in essence. Now, I realize the term essence is not one that you probably are going to hear on the coast very often. Right? We don't, the term essence isn't used. But the essence of something is that which makes it what it is. The qualities that define a particular entity. God is one in essence. Maybe this will help you. Uh, go to Matthew 28. Um, we'll, we'll get to Ephesians. But Matthew 28, I want to show you maybe something here. This is the famous Great Commission text, right? And I actually want to show you something. You might not have caught this before in relation to the Trinity. So go to Matthew 28, verse 18. Lynn touched on this last week, I believe. And Jesus, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, great passage, right? But notice, notice this idea of God being one in essence. It can be seen just in this next verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the Trinity, what, what do you guys see there? Just throw it out. What, what do you, what, who sees Trinity there? Give, give me some, give me some, what do you see? Well, the word Trinity is not used. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, by the way. Okay, good, good. I, I heard Son, Holy Spirit, and Father. Good, don't forget the Father. Wonderful. Yep, all three persons of the Godhead are listed, but everyone look at where it says the name. Why is that singular and not plural? Why doesn't it say baptize them into the names of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever noticed that before? That the name into which Christians are baptized is singular, not plural. Now, why is that? Well, according to Matthew, the name of the Lord, the name above all other names, belongs to these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are the one God. There is both a unity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one name, and a distinction, which you guys picked up on, three persons. Are you still with me? Good. I hope so, because this is not just random abstract information. Do you understand? I'm not just trying to cram your head with a bunch of theological jargon that I learned in college. This is actually life or death stuff. In fact, William Perkins put it this way, beautifully. He says, basically, without the, without the Trinity, we actually have no gospel. It, look, if, if you say you're a Christian and you're saved, if you don't understand the Trinity and you're not actually coming under that, you're actually not even a, a Christian. <laughs> Do you realize how big of a deal that is? Listen to what William Perkins says. He said, it is not sufficient to salvation to have a vague or unbiblical view of God. 
to be saved, we must hold and believe that the God, that God the Father is our Father, the Son our Redeemer, the Holy Ghost our Sanctifier and Comforter. You see what a big deal this is? The, this, the Trinity, again, not just ab abstract information. This is without the Trinity, we don't have a proper understanding of God. Massive. God is one in essence. But we have to be careful there. We have to be careful. Listen, while the Father, Son, and Spirit are identified with the one God, they are distinguished from each other by their personal names. Okay? Do you know, do you know what I mean by that? The first person of the Godhead is the Father. The second person of the Godhead is the Son. The third person of the Godhead is the Spirit. They are not three gods, nor are they some confederation of the one God with lesser gods. God is one in essence, meaning the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all divine and equal measure. While all three are identified with the one God, there are real differences between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Which leads us to our next point. God is one in essence, three in person. God is one in essence, three in person. You have to have both of these statements because you'll, 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 fall, you'll fall off the horse okay, into heretical teachings. God is one in essence, three in person. Now, we often close our services here with a benediction from 2 Corinthians. And what I want to do is I want to read that benediction. Some of you have heard it quite often. But I'm going to read it to you. See if you can hear each member of the Trinity distinguished here. Listen, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Did you hear the three persons of the Trinity mentioned? Yet, distinguished from each other, right? Did you hear how they were distinguished? Now, why were they distinguished? Is that, and why am I even flagging that? Is that just me splitting hairs? You know, am I just wanting to be too precise there? As I said earlier, Christianity is not polytheistic. At the same time, Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is not Unitarian either. Unitarian meaning that the one divine nature is possessed by only a single person. That's what oneness Pentecostals believe. Oneness Pentecostals, a cult, believe that God is absolutely and indivisibly one. But that's false. That's categorically false. The Bible displays that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are distinguished from each other. God is one in essence, three in person, you see. If you smash them all together, you have a false God. In other words, God the Father did not die on the cross. Do you know that? If you, like when people say, oh, when people pray, and this is why, and I appreciate Sky's prayer that was written out, it's, 
you could be sloppy in some theological areas, maybe, it's hard for me to say that, but you can't be sloppy in this area. You get sloppy in this area and you're a heretic. God the Father did not die on the cross. How is that even possible, logically speaking? God the Son was sent by God the Father to die on the cross. You see? And by the way, who is Jesus talking to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Himself? Oh, Father, if this cup is, you know. No, you must go to, you know, it's like, what's going on there? Multiple personality Jesus, what's, what's happening? You, you see, there's distinctions, and there's, these are distinctions are important. And let me say this too, Th- and, and we're going we're gonna to hit on this in Ephesians. It is absolutely essential, not that you just can say, oh, I can tick these things in my mind, but you understand this all correlates to salvation, to your salvation if you're a Christian. In fact, I, I want you to see this with your own eyes. Go to, go to Ephesians Judy just read that for us. So go to the right in your Bibles. Go to the book of Ephesians. Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he just, he explodes. This guy is like, has had five Red Bulls. And and he is so excited, he's just, he won't even put a period in his writing here. He literally starts in verse three, and it's a one run-on sentence. He just, he's so excited as he reflects upon salvation. But notice carefully, notice he begins his letter to the Ephesian church by praising, notice verse 3, the Father's name. You see that? Blessed be the God and Father. He, he names the first person of the Trinity there. But his praise doesn't end there. Look at the next part of the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He praises God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for fathering us via adoption in and through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? See how it's working here? Notice verse 5. Let's keep going, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Is it making a little bit more sense? The, 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 The son's work, this is why it's important for you to come to our equip classes, particularly when we talk about Christology that you don't just pray to just, and don't think about. Here, here's, the, here's the thing, and I'll, I'll talk about this in just a second. This is important because, do you know Muslims, like they, they accuse us being polytheists, you know that? They say, you guys are a bunch of polytheists. Because we say, oh, no we're not. Uh, yes, you, you say that you believe in three gods. No, yes, uh, no. And it is absolutely important that as Christians, we understand who the God of Scripture is, how he's disclosed himself, revealed himself. We can articulate, we can rub shoulders with Muslims. Uh, look, I was, I was at, uh, was, it, was it Redfern? Is that one of the stations in Sydney? I was at Redfern, and I was engaging with this Muslim gal who just does like the little, she wasn't like, you know, an, a Muslim an apologist or anything. She was just sitting there like, what, what does the person make sure people hop over the, 
that they tap their little opal card or whatever. She's just standing there, and, and I had 20 minutes, and, and I started engaging with her, and she said, oh, you Christians, you guys are polytheists, and da, da, da. And I was like, this is incredible. She, and, and she says, and because you guys believe in this, this, and this, and she says, but Abraham said this, and da, da, da. And I'm going, wow, she knows more Bible than many Christians. This is, this is crazy. So how are we, friends, going to engage with someone like that? Are we going to say, well, you should just believe in Jesus, hallelujah, and rave our hands, and, you know, just, I'm just going to pray for you. Oh, that's nice. I'll pray for you, heretic, infidel, crazy fornicator. You know what I mean? That's what they think of us. So how are we going to engage with people like that? And not only that, how are we going to be clear? You see, this is how essential this is to the gospel when you start saying, oh, you, okay, so say, say you're rubbing shoulders with someone here on the coast. Say you're at, at you know, I always say Avoca Beach, but say you're at wherever you guys go. I don't care. Say, at, where? I say that all the time, too. There's only so many places you can visit on the coast. So, Wyoming shops, there you go. Say you're there. Just don't let your car, car get... Okay, anyway. So say, say you're there, and you're engaging with people, huh, and they say, oh, you need to believe, believe in God to be saved. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, you've got to believe uh, that God... Well, well, I, okay, I believe in God. I have, I have a faith. Yeah, I believe there's a God. Well, what do you mean by those categories, you see? Who is God? Well, God, God had a son. God... God being pregnant and gave birth to a son? No, he has a son he, who is eternally existed, I think, something like that. You see, we, we have to be able to understand th this is all you got to do. It's right here in Ephesians. You're, you're, these categories are central to evangelism, central to the gospel. So let's, let's keep reading here. The Father sends the Son to redeem. Here's, here's my point, right? The Father sends the Son to redeem. The Son comes from the Father to accomplish it. And then, notice verse 13, the Spirit comes from the Father and Son to apply redemption. Look at verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see how this is working? Do you see why this is important? Each person in the Godhead plays a crucial role in your salvation. Joel Beakey put it this way. He said, the gospel is essentially Trinitarian. Every member of the Trinity performs an indispensable function. If I could have this printed out and put on all of your fridges, I would. Seriously. Because this is absolutely, th this is what I was just, Joel, keep, Joel Beakey puts it much better than I just tried to put it. But he says, every member of the Trinity performs an indispensable function in our salvation. Without God the Father, there would be no one to send the Son and Spirit into the world to accept the Son's sacrifice and to hear the Spirit-wrought prayers of the redeemed. Without the obedience and sufferings of God the Son, no one could escape God's curse or enjoy God's blessing in the Spirit. Without the renewing work and indwelling presence of God the Spirit, no one would benefit from Christ's redemptive work or have any assurance of being reconciled to God as his child. 
Apart from the divine spirit, God could not dwell within the hearts of the redeemed to relate them to the Father and the Son. Without the Trinity, the gospel disappears. That's well said, Biki. Much better than me. You, you understand what I'm, uh, that's what I was trying to bang on like five minutes ago. I probably lost you. But that, that's the point. We, we are Trinitarian, not because we think it's a cool box to tick or, or because we want to try to separate ourselves or l whatever. It's because it's part and parcel of the gospel. I mean, I, I really like there how he says, apart from the divine spirit, God could not dwell within the hearts of the redeemed to relate them to the Father and the Son. That really helps your pneumatology, meaning pneuma, spirit, helps you understand the work of the spirit. And the work of the spirit is not a, it's not a, per, it's not a force or a liquid or some kind of a, it's, it's not like, you know, Jedi manipulation or something. The person, the third person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the spirit, you see. The Lord has revealed himself as triune. God is one in essence, three in person. Are you starting to see the importance of this a bit? It, this, is, this is absolutely massive. Two books I want to recommend to you because I think it's important. First is a book by, and I'll, I'll leave them up here afterwards, Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity. Second book is Scott Swain's book called, I think, Introduction to the Trinity or something. Two really helpful books. We're going to continue to celebrate this truth in communion. And the Lord's Supper, or communion, reflects the Trinity as well. See, by the mouth of faith, we partake of and commune in the body and blood of the incarnate Son himself as he is presented to us by the Father in the gospel. Remember, we're just reading there. So this is not just now something that we tick on. Like, wouldn't that be cool? We should probably do that. No, these are, these are fundamentally stitched in to the fabric of the Trinity, and that's how it's displaying. You see? So if you are here and you are a Christian, and you understand what it means that you've turned from sin, you've, you've placed your faith, and even now, presently, are trusting in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. If that is you, I, I would encourage you to rejoice in those truths by grabbing the little, we've got a little wafer that represents his body and the juice represents his blood. If you are here and you are not a Christian, again, wonderful that you're here, friend, but this is not for you. This is for believers, for those who have embraced Jesus by faith alone. The Bible says, yet to all who received him, Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you are here and you are a child of God, meaning by faith in Christ and his work on your behalf, let's celebrate that together. So the, 